0: morning, Church. Uh, today's Bible reading is from Ephesians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and it's on your pew on page 949. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the Church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the Church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. Well, as we continue our series on the doctrine of the church, let me uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that you have saved us in Christ and that you have made us the bride of Christ. And as we learned last week that we are the body of Christ, as different members playing its part in building each other up, we pray, Lord, that as we consider your word this morning, that we may be encouraged to live holy and blameless lives, so that we might be the pure virgin as the bride of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jack fell in love at first sight. It was a fairy tale romance, the kind you tell your grandkids about. Two foreigners meeting in a third country, falling in love and getting engaged within months. Uh, Jew was incredibly charismatic, incredibly beautiful, and made uh, Jack feel like the prince he never knew he wanted to be. Uh, so even though they lived in different countries, he didn't stop Jack uh, from committing to the relationship. He spent untold amounts of money traveling between their countries. He paid for her degree. He paid for her rent. He did everything he could to fo- so that she could focus on her studies. Uh, to get her visa so that she could move to his country to be with him forever and ever. And when Jill's visa was approved, uh, Jack finalized the wedding plans with a bigger bridal party because Jill wanted a bigger wedding. Uh, He rented a more expensive apartment in the city because Jill loved the city location. He bought her an entire new wardrobe because her clothes didn't work in this new country. Uh, And so they got married. It couldn't have been a better wedding day. Jokes from the priest, tears from the bride, and the love was certainly in the air. But then, the pizza incident happened. Two and a half months after they get married, Jack begs Jill to leave the apartment, to leave him alone, to never ever speak to him again. You see, Jill was unfaithful. After the fairy tale wedding day, man and wife move into this beautiful city apartment. But as the days roll on and the marriage unfolds, Jill's true colors come to light. When Jack asks Jill uh, to work during the school, uh, uni holidays to help out financially, she refuses because uni is just too stressful, even though she was on holidays. Uh, Jill tells Jack that all this nagging about how she could help out with the family is just so upsetting, so she wants him to leave her alone and pay for her to go on a weeks long vacation without him. Uh, Jack finds out that Jill's been living with another man when she was overseas. When he was paying her rent, she was living with another man. He sees text messages on her phone and finds out that they didn't just live together, they went on holidays together at his expense. They were in love with each other. And if that wasn't enough, on the wedding night, on their amazing wedding night, the best day of his life, he sees that she was on Tinder chatting up other men. And then one night while Jack was out, he sees Jill out with another man. He, so he confronts her, but denies it, tells Jack that he's just seeing things. But Jack tells himself that despite all those things, despite their differences, they'll survive. They're going to be okay. Their mar- marriage will flourish because they're so in love with each other. And then the pizza incident happened. Jack buys pizza for dinner, he's a vegetarian, so he's bu- he buys himself a, a a vegan pizza, which must have tasted awful, but that's him, and then Jill, for Jill, he buys her a, a, a meat pizza with meat on it, probably a meat lover's. The next day, when uh, they didn't finish their dinner, there was too much for them to have, so they put both pizzas, the leftovers, in the fridge, but the next day, when Jack goes to the fridge, he notices that his pizza's all gone, the vegetarian pizza's all gone, but... What's left is the meat lovers that belongs to Jill. And he's he just can't believe it. He realizes that Jill decided to eat all his pizza because she knew he couldn't eat hers. And that was the petty move that broke the camel's back. At this moment Jack finally admits to himself how completely Jill disrespects him. It was a symbolic act of all that had happened, all the affairs, all the lies all the spending of his money on dates with other men. He could have tolerated all those, but this pizza was just too much. If Jack knew what Jill was really like inside, when they had met, when they fell in love, if Jack knew what kind of person Jill was, do you think he would have ever married her? And ever sent all these gifts to her and supported her and patiently waited for her to return that love? We know he wouldn't have. We wouldn't have, right? We would never marry someone like this. Someone so self-centered and so so narcissistic, so manipulative, so abusive and ungrateful, so unrepentant and unfaithful. We would never marry anyone like this, Jill. No one in their right mind would marry a bride from hell. Yet the Bible tells us that God would, and God has and God will, with his eyes wide open, knowing exactly what his bride would be, what and all, God chooses to marry a bride from hell. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We see this in passages like Isaiah 62. But the most explicit Old Testament reference to this idea that God would marry such a horrible, horrible person is in the book of Hosea. Hosea was an Old Testament prophet, but unlike Jonah, he he wasn't swallowed by a big great fish. Or Daniel, who was thrown into the lion's den. Uh, those stories are, are, are really interesting and fascinating, and they appear in our, our, our children's Bibles because they're so kid friendly. But unfortunately for Hosea, you won't see his story in kids' Bibles because he's a bit more R rated. The story of Hosea is a strange one because God commands uh, Hosea to marry a prostitute. A prostitute who will continue to be unfaithful to him. Imagine someone saying that to you. Go and marry that prostitute and that prostitute will continue to be unfaithful to you even when you're married, even if you love them, even if you shower them with all that you have, they will continue to be unfaithful to you. Imagine someone telling you to do that. Well, that's what God said to Hosea. That's what God commanded Hosea to do. And this Old Testament prophet obeys God. He goes and marries this woman called Goma. And Hosea becomes a living and graphic illustration of God's love for his people and Israel's unfaithfulness to God. So in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Go, God says to Hosea, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land, this people of Israel is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Verse three, so he married Gomer. Now, the primary setting of Isaiah's book is Israel becoming captive to the Syrians in the eighth century BC. Uh, and it was, uh, it happened because of Total disregard for God and his laws and unwillingness to repent, even though God called Israel to come back, to turn back to him, to be forgiven, to repent of her sins, to know his love, his hesed, covenant love. Yet despite her unfaithfulness, God remains faithful and promises to renew his relationship with his people. So we read in Hosea chapter 2, I will betroth you to be to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. And this metaphor of Hosea's marriage to his unfaithful wife is comparable to the relationship Yahweh has with his people, Israel. And then in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Aren't you just glad that we've got kids, church, today? Now, when we come to the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is God, who is the bridegroom, who's come for his bride the church the people of god which is in fulfillment of god's promise in hosea and we don't just see that uh, 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 this in some parables of jesus we we certainly do such as the parable of the wedding feast in matthew 22 but also in four passages that i want to take you through quickly to understand and appreciate what it means for the church to be the bride of christ the verse is in john chapter 3 from verse 22 now, you might remember it because uh, I preached on this earlier this year. Jesus is baptizing his, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus' disciples are baptizing people by the Jordan River. And, and they're baptizing more and more people than John the Baptist and his disciples. And so there's a bit of a conflict between them, not because of Jesus and his disciples or John and John's Baptists, but because there are troublemakers who come to John the Baptist like a news journalist trying to create a story out of nothing. And so we read in John chapter 3, verse 26. They came, these troublemakers, come to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, that is Jesus. Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. But John the Baptist doesn't flinch. He doesn't get sucked up into the tactics of headline news. He tells them that he's the best man to the bridegroom that's come. And he can't be happier that Jesus is getting more attention than he is now. His job's done. He's pointing the finger, look at Jesus, go to him. So John chapter 3, verse 28, he says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. You see, John the Baptist understood rightly that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, he's God's promised king. He's the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. He is the bridegroom that has come from his bride. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah. And he's full of joy. As we would be filled with joy when we see our friend Mary Herbert or his best friend. The bridegroom has come for his bride. And then when we come to read in Ephesians 5, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Apostle Paul rightly then understands Jesus as the bridegroom who laid down his life for his bride, the church. The Apostle Paul describes marriage uh, in Ephesians 5 that Mark read to us. And in here, he's talking about the roles and responsibilities of a Christian husband and a Christian wife and what that marriage should look like. As it's reflected in Christ and the church. He goes on and quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now in Genesis uh, uh, 2, this is before the fall. This is the definition of marriage. Uh, This we understood was Adam and Eve being joined in marriage as one flesh. But then Paul goes on to explain in the very next verse by telling us that this is a profound mystery. That is, in, in what was told to us in Genesis 2, there was actually an underlying message, a mystery, that was attached to it, that was hidden for all these ages until the coming of Christ. But now with the coming of Christ, this mystery has been revealed. The underlying message of Genesis 2.24, now, has now come to light. And so what is this mystery? What is it that we need to understand about what this verse is all about? Well, we're told in chapter 5, verse 32 of Ephesians, that Genesis 2.24 isn't actually about any ordinary marriage between a man and a woman, but it's actually about Jesus and the church. So Ephesians 5.32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, up until Jesus came, marriage was just marriage. A man and a woman coming together to form a new family unit. There's the act of leaving your parents and cleaving to your spouse as a man and a wife, leaving and cleaving. But what we're now told is that from the very beginning, God the Father was planning a bride for his son. And so he made all human marriages as signposts to the one and perfect marriage. The human marriage is a foretaste of the glory and the goodness of the marriage that everyone can have with Christ. From the very first marriage of Adam and Eve to the very last marriage that happens just before Jesus returns, to varying degrees all marriages points to the marriage of Jesus and his church. You see, Jesus left his Father from heaven to step foot into creation, to cleave to his bride, the church. There is the leaving and the cleaving. You see, marriage isn't ultimately about us. It's about Jesus and the church. Jesus sacrificed himself for his bride, the church, for you and me. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul goes on to tell us that Jesus' sacrificial love was purposeful. He did it to make us, his bride, his church, holy and blameless. Verse 26 to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but a holy and blameless. You see, we're like Goma. We're like the Israelites of old. We're unfaithful and we sleep around with other gods. Like you, we expect God to cause the sun to rise in the east and give us the bodies to sing and dance and enjoy the good life that we deserve. All the while, we live like he doesn't exist and neither give him thanks for all that he blesses us with. We neither worship him with our whole heart, soul, mind or strength or love him as we should. We're unfaithful and taking for granted. We pursue our dreams and get into bed with our love for self-fulfillment and selfish desires. But in Jesus, he doesn't just pay the penalty for our sins knowing what we are. He loves us even to death on the cross. But he doesn't just love love us to save us. He loves us so that he will make us like him, holy and blameless without stain or wrinkle. He loves us so much that he will make us love what God loves and hate what God hates. He will make us love him as our bridegroom and be faithful to him as his bride. That we might want to and desire to obey him with all that we are. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants us to be. In his own words, he wants us, the church, to be a pure virgin to Christ the groom. Which leads me to the third passage, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The way to remain pure and unhinged, to be holy and blameless, to be without wrinkle or stain, isn't by trying hard and doing better, but by standing firm in the gospel. That's Paul's point here in two Corinthians chapter eleven, from verse two. I am jealous for you, he says to the church in Corinth. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached or you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put it, up with, put it up with it easily enough. You see, they're tolerating another gospel and another spirit. But Paul is saying, I want you to stand firm in the gospel we proclaim to you. That's how you stay pure, holy, and blameless. That's how Paul was about to present the church in Corinth as a pure virgin to Christ on the last day. You see, the problem in Corinth was that the so-called super apostles, that Paul had uh, come and gone now. Paul had planted this church and had had left. Now other people are coming to convince him of something else, and Paul's defending his gospel. He's defending his ministry, and he's telling them to stand firm in the gospel. Otherwise, they won't be the pure virgin to Christ. Because the gospel tells us that righteousness doesn't come from within. From what we do, but from without, from what we receive. That is being holy and blameless, like a virgin before God. Isn't about being right, but being made right by God. You see, God doesn't want our goodness, for we can't be good. He wants our trust, for He is good. And therefore, when we put our trust in Jesus, for all, for for what we call faith. To believe in Him, to trust Him, to have faith in Him is all the same thing. And when we do that, we're at the same time righteous and a sinner. You see, God loves and accepts us just as we are, not as we might be or will be, but as He finds us in Jesus. That's why we can't, we, that's why we can at the same time be holy and blameless, the pure virgin of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us, even though we continue to sin and be that unfaithful bride like Jill. Martin Luther explains this uh, uh, with an illustration uh, in his Freedom of a Christian. He tells us about a king who marries a prostitute. It's an allegory for the marriage of King Jesus and the wicked sinner. And when they marry the The prostitute becomes, by status, a queen. It's not that she made herself queenly so that she won the right to become a queen. She was a wicked harlot through and through, but when they got married, her status changed because of the king. And so she may now be a prostitute at heart, but her status is a queen. In the same way, when we put our trust in Jesus, we are simultaneously a sinner at heart and righteous by status. So what the queen has now belongs to the king and vice versa. Jesus takes our sins and we take upon ourselves his righteousness. So she can confidently say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all he His is mine and all mine is his. It is in this security that the prostitute can now start to become queenly at heart. You see, salvation is not by faith and works. It's not by believing and try harder. It's by believing and becoming the person you've been saved to be. So, like the queen, we desire to please our king, not to become queen, but to be the queen we are. Now, let me give you an illustration of how that might work out in a church. So, a couple of years ago, Ligon, uh, Ligon Duncan uh, spoke at a conference. In case you don't know him, he's the chancellor of the Reformed Theological Seminary in the States. Uh, at this conference, as he addressed twelve thousand Christians, he fought back tears. And he said this, it has taken more than three decades for God to bring his blindness off of my heart. You see, Duncan grew up in the South and spent most of his life with people who looked like him. His churches were predominantly white. His friends were predominantly white. He had black peers at seminary, but he wasn't friends with them or never got close to them. And so when he taught at the Reformed Theological Seminary in the 90s, he he covered topics such as abortion and birth control, gender and sexuality, marriage and singleness, but not racism. For Duncan, slavery and segregation and civil rights were political issues and not a matter of Christian ethics. It it wasn't until he began speaking regularly at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where Mark Dever is uh, in the minister, and he was invited there to speak at the annual conference, uh, and that church in D.C. is much more diverse, and he became friends with some godly Bible-believing African-Americans. And so what happened was that the white lens that he saw the world through was penetrated by the gospel afresh. With the light of the gospel from the perspective of his black brother brothers in Christ, through that experience and through getting to know other Christians... Not like himself, he began to realize his sin of racism and his neglect to love his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as he loved himself and people who looked like him. Duncan says this when you get to love someone, you start to care about the things they care about. We've got a lot of different cultures here, but we tend to stay to ourselves. And what the and what that does is it makes you blind to the experience of people who aren't like you. And so when you become friends with people who are not like you and you let your guard down, you love them, and you trust them, and you can see things you didn't see before, you're finally in a situation where you can start learning. To become more holy and blameless, to become more like Christ. You see, Duncan's a godly Christian man. He loves his bridegroom Jesus. And when Jesus opened his eyes and he let himself be open to the gospel and to other brothers and sisters speaking into his life and help him see what he can't see and help him to realize his biases, his neglect, his unloving neglect of others, he was convicted and convinced and contrite. He was repentant and forgiven and loved, not to become queen, as it were, but to become the queen he is. You see, friends, we're all like Duncan. We've all got our blind spots, and we need each other as the body of Christ to help each other to see ourselves and each other and our world through each other's lens, the lens of the gospel, to see what we can't see on our own, to help us realise afresh maybe the ways in which we're racist or selfish, the ways we are unforgiving or unrepentant, Unloving or ungracious, unthankful or proud or arrogant, rude or self-righteous, impatient, greedy. We need to be like Duncan and allow others to speak into our lives. We need to be like Duncan and be convicted and convinced and contrite so that we might be forgiven and be loved. To be the queen we are. I remember years ago, I caught up with a friend just over at Linga, actually. We were having coffee and it had been some time. We've known each other for years. It had been quite some time before uh, that, that we had caught up since that time. And he's a bit older than me. And he's a good brother in Christ. And out of the blue in our conversation, he said to me, Dave, you've known me for a long time. What sins do you see in my life? And I was really taken aback. Because I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. But I was just so encouraged by it. Because he was willing for me to speak into his life. And he invited me to do that. And I wonder whether you'd be willing to do that too. Maybe it's asking your spouse. Or a friend. Maybe it's asking a child or a grandparent. If we aren't willing to let others speak into our lives, we will be poorer for it. Just as Duncan would have been if he continued in his hidden racism that he didn't realize he had. But maybe you're not at that point where you're brave enough to ask someone to speak into your life, to bring the gospel to bear into your life. Well, let me encourage you to read Scripture, of course, but maybe pick up a book like this book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. It's a fantastic book. Jerry Bridges, when I met him years ago, he's an old man, frail, but so in love with God. And this was one of his last books that he wrote before he passed. And it's a brilliant book because it confronts the acceptable sins we have in our society. The sins that we live with and we tolerate as though it's okay and God won't mind. Sins such as pride and anger. Sins that we know that are there, that we may have buried, but we often ignore. Sins that we... We have, and we think people don't notice, and we live with. And the great thing about this book isn't that he just forces us to truly look at ourselves as God sees us, but that the book, as it explores our feelings of shame and grief, opens a new door to God's forgiveness and grace. Now our struggle with sin and our need to repent of sin will continue until the day that Christ returns. And when he returns and our bridegroom comes to take us home, we'll be made perfect. We will be the pure virgin. We will be holy and blameless like our groom. And on that day will be a great day. For it will be our wedding day. Revelation 21, two. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Just as the Bible begins with a wedding, so the Bible ends with a wedding. The mystery, the profound mystery, was speaking of not Adam and Eve and their marriage, but of Christ and his bride which comes to fulfillment on the last day when he returns. For all of this, from creation to new creation, God is preparing a bride for his son. That's the big picture of the Bible. God is preparing a bride for his son. And that is the church. That is you and me. And so if you're a Christian, you're part of the most significant marriage of all time. Whether you're single or divorced, whether you're widow or widower, whether you're struggling in your marriage or not, as the bride of Christ, you belong to the marriage that matters. The marriage that is perfect. The marriage that will last forever. You see, all human marriages are built to end. And I'm not talking about divorce, I'm talking about death. Death is the great enemy of relationship, of love, and of marriage. And so when a husband dies or when a wife dies, their marriage comes to an end. But not so with the marriage with Christ. Not so with the marriage of Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. It will never end. It will last forever. It's a love that will never die. It's the fairy tale that will come true. And you and I are part of it. Jill didn't flinch when she took Jack's money. And she didn't care about Jack when she slept with other men. Yet Jack kept pursuing her and loved her. Jack kept giving to Jill and desperately wanted Jill to love him back. But when she ate his pizza and showed complete disregard for him, it was one step too far. And so he told her to leave. He filed for divorce and they're no longer together. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that God will never give up on us. And Jesus will never ask us to leave. He's like the shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to look for the one, he's the father in the parable of the prodigal son who waits for his wayward son to return. And so if you turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you belong to the bride of Christ and trust him to make you holy and blameless, then let's friends, let's brothers and sisters serve him as a faithful bride to our bridegroom. For he came to serve us by laying down his life for us even though he knew how unfaithful we've been and and how unfaithful we'll continue to be. Let's love him for he loved us with an outstretched arm which were pierced with nails on the cross of Calvary. Let's respect him and become holy just as he is holy for he lived the life we can't and died the death we deserve so that in him what is his is ours and what is ours is his. That we might become the virgin bride and have the hope of the fairy tale wedding that will last for all eternity.
0: Amen.